I'm Krista Tippett. Today, African-American woman leader, qualities this presidential election has at times pitted at odds. My guest this hour, Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie, holds them all together. She also sheds light on the socially critical tradition of African-American Christianity that became a point of political controversy in this election year. We offer her wisdom and good humor as an edifying lens on the American past, present, and future. I live for the day. I live for the day. I said over and over again, I live for the day. When my gender and my race means nothing, means nothing that my gifts, my skills, my character, my mental astuteness, these things qualify me to do the job. Period. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. This public radio podcast is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. I'm Krista Tippett. I've been wanting to interview Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie all year. The current U.S. election has illustrated how gender, race, and religion can become lightning rods and seen as potential stumbling blocks to leadership. Vashti McKenzie is a pioneering figure on all these fronts and all at the same time. When she became the first woman bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the oldest of the historic black churches dating back to the early days of the American Republic, she declared, the stained glass ceiling has been pierced and broken. Vashti McKenzie also sheds light this hour on the socially critical tradition of African-American Christianity that became a point of political controversy in this election year. We offer her story, her wisdom, and her good humor as an edifying lens on the American past, present, and future. I live for the day. I live for the day. I said over and over again, I live for the day. When my gender and my race means nothing, means nothing that my gifts, my skills, my character, my mental astuteness, these things qualify me to do the job. Period. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, African-American woman leader. Meeting Vashti Murphy McKenzie. Vashti McKenzie was ordained a bishop in 2000 and now leads the 13th Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME. The roots of the AME were laid in 1787, when preacher and former slave Richard Allen and other black Methodists walked out of a church in Philadelphia to protest their treatment by whites. For Vashti McKenzie, religion was just one supportive aspect of an altogether empowering upbringing. Her great-grandfather founded a chain of African-American newspapers in 1892. Her maternal grandfather, Carl Murphy, had five daughters and raised them to carry on the family business. Vashti McKenzie at first followed in this tradition, becoming a broadcaster and corporate vice president of programming at a TV station. She married an NBA basketball star, Stan McKenzie, who's been her husband now for 40 years and with whom she has three children. Then in the late 1970s, she preached her first sermon at a pulpit in her native Baltimore and knew that this was her life's calling. Yet through all her accomplishments, Vashti McKenzie has experienced the crosshairs, as she puts it, of racism and sexism. I have been a female and African-American all my life. When I look back over the places where I've been in life, I have not been in traditionally places, roles, functionalities that were traditionally female, except for, I think, one one time. Uh, but being doing morning drive, morning drive was not <laughs> so uh, even at then. that time in the uh-huh. 60s a, a traditional place for a woman to be. Uh, being a program director in a major market, Washington, D.C., and we got good ratings, yay, hmm. uh, but that was not a traditional role for women. Uh, being a general manager radio station at the time was not a traditional role for a woman. So to be able to face the jokes, um, you know, you'd come into work and 
your program director now. So uh, now you are you're going off shift and uh, you're going to handle the administrative responsibilities and duties. And uh, the next person coming behind you, I give a little reminder. I said, don't forget to leave the studio the way you found it. Uh, and so uh, the young man said to me, but uh, uh, you can't tell me what to do because I, a woman is not supposed to tell a man what to do. And I said, excuse me. <laughs> I'm your program director. I signed your checks, you know. Uh, pardon me. And, and he says, well, the Bible says uh, that uh, a wife is supposed to submit herself to her husband. And I said, am I married to you? Uh, and he says, no. Then make sure the studio looks like this when you go off shift. Okay. <laughs> you know? And it's those kinds of things that you, you face on a daily basis. You, you know, those kinds of things. And it becomes very disappointing when you believe that you're holding hands with your brothers who are of African descent, who you believe that together we're going to help open the doors for the generation that are coming behind us. Mm. And together we're going to work to be sure uh, that people don't look at our color first, uh, but they look at our skills, our qualifications, our education, our background. And then all of a sudden, the hand that you're holding turns around and closes the door in your face because you're a woman. Mm. See, And so that what it means is being in the crosshairs. It's sort of like a double whammy. You know, you get, bam, you get hit because of your color. And then you get hit again because of your gender. Now, you were, is this right, you were in sixth grade when integration arrived in Baltimore. Yes. Um how did that imprint your sense of what it meant to be African-American culturally? I mean, did that make you more aware of your race than you had been before? Yes. Uh, I believe that, um, you know, growing up in Baltimore, we were in a very wonderful community where we knew everybody in the neighborhood, and it was a, a wonderful, affirming place. Uh, in school, your school teachers were likely to be the same persons who were your Sunday school teachers. It's like a unit between the church, the school, and the community. It was a wonderful incubator, you know, just a mm-hmm. wonderful incubator. Then all of a sudden, integration comes, and we are bussed across town to a new school where instead of being a part of a majority, you are a part of a minority. Mm-hmm. You may be the only person who is of African descent in your class. There may be two or three of you. I don't remember. I, I believe that there were only about seven to ten kids in this humongous elementary school where, where I finished the sixth grade. And, of course, they couldn't get my name right. I was Vashti, and I kept saying, no, I am Vashti, and, or you're Washti, and no, and I said, you know, and, and the kids in the class, well, why didn't your mother name you Mary or Anne like the rest of us? <laughs> because my name is not Mary or Anne like the rest of you. Uh, it is Vashti. Well, we have to find a name. We have to call you something. We just can't call you your name. And then all of a sudden, you become an oddity, and there was really a new experience. Uh, and so... You, you find yourself in a, in a position where you have to teach people about your culture and your heritage because they didn't know. That's not an easy thing understand. to do when you're in sixth or seventh or eighth grade, when you're wrestling with your identity at such a fundamental level as well. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, you find that you have to prove yourself every day. Uh, before then, you were just you. Here you are. You're in class with teachers uh, who, you know, looked at you and expected you to do great things. Then you're thrust into an environment where people expect you to fail. They look for you to fail. Uh, they look for you to be in the lowest reading group. They look for you to do the worst in math. And so you find you have to prove different. The school was wonderful because it had a whole lot of other things that we didn't have. You know, I was at uh, Robert Brown Elliott School Number 104, which at the top of the school, in stone, it said Colored School Number 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we had was a playground and a cafeteria. But at this new school, there was a gymnasium. We never had a gymnasium before. They had a band. 
track and field outside, out back. I mean, it was like, wow. You know, they had all these kinds of things that we didn't have in our elementary school, which was wonderful, you know. But I was already taking piano lessons, and so when I got to that school, they said, well, we already have a student playing piano. You have to learn another instrument. I said, okay, fine. And you find that in every place that you're put, you have to prove your existence, uh, that you have a right to be there. And that's what... African-Americans, and that's what women do every day in a leadership position. Hmm. You have to prove that you have a right to be there. Bishop Vashti McKenzie, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, African-American woman leader. Before Vashti McKenzie became the first female bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, she spent 10 years as the first female pastor of the historic Payne Memorial Church in Baltimore. As she was about to accept that call in 1990, one bishop pulled her aside to question her readiness. He said she's written that my failure would not just be my personal failure. It would mean that a woman would not be appointed to such a charge for a very long time. Under Vashti McKenzie's leadership, Payne Memorial not only grew, it launched multiple community projects, including a human and economic development center with a senior adult daycare and a Head Start program. Payne Memorial also secured a $1.5 million welfare-to-work contract with the state of Maryland. This kind of social engagement is a contemporary expression of the traditional role of African-American churches as a hub of common life, not just worship. Vashti McKenzie says this kind of action is essential in light of her theology and the African Methodist Episcopal Church's sense of mission. You know, seek out and save the lost, visit the sick, uh, cheer the fallen, encourage thrift, economic thrift, uh, you know, housing, visit those who are in prison. Uh, and these are, you know, these are biblically based. These are not things that were just grabbed out of the air. When you go to Matthew, the 25th chapter, uh, when Jesus says, uh, you know, um, when the people respond, when did we see you hungry? Yeah. When did we see you in prison? Uh, and the Lord's response is, as you have done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me, the church ought to be a center of the community. And being in the community, then our responsibility are not only to those who are members of your church, our responsibility is also to those who live in the shadow of, I call it the shadow of your citadel. Uh, and so there is a neighborhood, there is a community of needs and beings. And so the church ought to respond to that. And being at pain, and you must understand, every church I pastored, I was the first woman. Okay. It's <laughs> not just pain. All right. Every, every church along the way. Okay. I was the first woman uh, to pastor that congregation. I'm excited to say that I was not the last woman uh, to pastor. Uh, But being in Payne Memorial in that Northwest Baltimore area, um, that congregation, for the most part, people drove in from other neighborhoods to attend that Hmm. congregation. They used to live around there. But around that neighborhood, there was violence, there was crime, uh, there was drug activity, there was prostitution. uh, There were people who were hungry, people who were homeless on the street. So what are we supposed to do? Drive in, have our wonderful service and go home (laughs) and not do anything uh, to enhance uh, the life of those who live around your congregation. Uh, and so then our job is, is to be sure that the power that is on the inside uh, becomes the power that reaches the people on the outside. So that means you do more than have a food pantry where once a week people who are hungry uh, can come uh, with a sack and, and we give you non-perishable food items. Uh, you have to go beyond that. You know, it's like, I saw you last week. Now, what are you going to do this week to be sure you're not in my line next week? Right. What can we do to help you and empower you next week? And so that was your week? welfare to work programming that you started. 
it's a natural lead-in. The outreach center, uh, you know, started with, of course, the food pantry and the clothes pantry, the, the traditional things that, that happen. And then we moved to helping people with their shut-off and cut-off notices. And then we became like the referral agency. Uh, I need help, okay? Let's see how we can connect you to the appropriate agency or organization in the community, in the city, uh, that can help you with that need. Because some people just can't navigate all the red tape that they face when they need help, or they don't know where to go to help. Uh, And so the natural progression was to move into a place where uh, we trained persons for jobs and, you know, held their hands while they navigated coming out of tennis shoes and jeans, and uh, we had a professional clothes closet. We did soft skills, uh, how to get your resume out, how to do an interview, how to do all those kind of things, and then go through the training program. So we did all of the prep work. It really helped connect the dots, um, Sure, very practical dots. And it's called demonstrating the love of God in tangible and practical ways. You became a bishop. That that was your next move from Payne Memorial. That's correct. And so now in, in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, as in many Protestant churches, you feel a calling to run for—you you run for bishop. It's kind of a political process. Um, it's not an appointment from on high. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, did you start to feel that calling to a broader leadership in those experiences you're describing? Is that something you can yes. trace? Yes. Yeah, I believe that there is a call to the episcopacy. I I believe it's more than a decision. You just don't wake up in the morning and say, well, you know, I've done this long enough. It's time for me to go do something else. Or, um, you know, I'm ready for the next level of service. I believe that just as there's a call to preach and there's a call to pastor, uh, there's a call to teach. I believe there's a call to episcopal service because the road to being elected is not an easy one. It's not an easy one for your family. And it's not an easy one for you. It is a political process. You have to campaign. Every four years, the AME Church holds a general conference. There are delegates who come from all over the world, from, uh, of course, the United States, the Caribbean, England, Europe, Africa, Canada. Uh, They come from all over the world, and they will elect Episcopal leaders. And so you have to present yourself to these delegates because they're going to vote for you. And it means you're going to have to travel. You're going to have to go to uh, outside of your annual conference. You're going to have to hit the campaign trail. (laughs) Yeah, you got to hit the campaign trail. And that's exactly what you do. And there, of course, we have campaign workers. You got volunteers. You got T-shirts. You got banners. Videos. I I heard you had a great video that greeted people at the convention about your life Mm -hmm. and ministry. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is, how do I get the message to people beyond the political barriers? It's the same thing that the candidates are doing now. But my campaign was on my track record, my experience. And I told people, don't elect me because I'm a woman. Elect me because I'm qualified to do the job. Elect me if you want me to be your bishop, because, you know, one day I just might be. You know, I haven't served all my life, haven't worked all my life. To be a novelty, to be a token anything, just to dress up the stage, you know, to be the feminine presence and all of this kind of thing. to me that you had a pretty challenging or at least stretching adventure. Your first appointment as bishop, you went to serve as the chief pastor of the 18th Episcopal District in Southeast Africa. And so you were in Lesotho and Swaziland, Botswana, Mozambique. But tell me how that time in Africa um, continued to evolve and shape your theology and your understandings of ministry and leadership. Well, Africa was and is a great place to do ministry because there are so many needs. And it's not difficult to convince people, well, you know, we have a problem here. Yes, we have a problem. Now, let us all come together and see how we're going to solve the problem. They're going to say, yes, let's go, (laughs) which is different. You know, when you're in the United States and you say, "Mm, have you noticed we're, you know, the, the neighborhood is decaying and we really ought to do something about it. And they'll say, well... 
we'll go home to the suburbs and we'll think about it and we'll come back and when we have official board we'll discuss it uh, but um, you know you're in Africa and there was uh, the HIV AIDS pandemic and you have in that southern region you had 7,000 people dying every week and mm-hmm. uh, church life is interrupted because uh, pastors and people have, have to pull together resources to bury people and you had children who were left by the roadside or uh, who were left on the steps of hospitals that are already overburdened. Hmm. And you have 10-year-olds raising their three and five and six-year-old siblings because their parents are in various stages of death and dying. Uh, I've seen poverty in the United States. I've seen what poor is. I've seen hunger here. I- I've seen homeless here. But you have never seen poverty as it is in Africa. It will break your heart. Did that put you more in touch with the prophetic tradition of the African-American church in particular? Um, you mean African Methodist Episcopal Church? Well, yeah, or, but even, even I think African-American theology in, in general in the United States has, it's in the Bible, okay, but I mean in terms of churches that have retained that at their core. I think Af- that's more true of African-American theology in the United States, perhaps. Um, did it? Did it awaken that in you or deepen that in you? I I couldn't say it awakened in me because I I felt that I've been at it all along in the prophetic social gospel tradition all along. And so it's a continuum. It says, yeah, you're right on course. (laughs) You are, you know, you're right in line. Uh, You are stepping in uh, the right direction in your preaching, in your theology, in your approach to ministry. Here is Bishop Vashti Murphy-McKenzie preaching at the Washington National Cathedral in January. She's expounding on the biblical story of the 40 years the ancient Israelites spent in the desert after they had been liberated from Egypt before they reached the Promised Land. The Exodus story of the Israelites' liberation from slavery and their guiding figure of Moses are pivotal in African-American biblical interpretation and theology. In other words, God said to Moses, enough is enough, and Moses turned around and told the people the same thing. And so, if we're talking about the pursuit of happiness... It appears that God indicates that direction is just as important as destination. The destination was set, the promised place of God. They knew where it was located. They were in the general vicinity for more than three decades. It wasn't a new destination, and neither were the people just informed about it. For the promised place of God was in their mission statement for 400 years and a part of the strategic plan at least for 38 They didn't know where to go. They knew where it was, but they just couldn't get there. And so all they were doing was going around and around in circles. They were marking time in merry-go-round agendas. Do you think we do the same now? Is God saying to us this morning, enough is enough? You've been going around in circles long enough? Merry-go-round agendas with the lives of of people. Merry-go-round agendas where everybody, some people have everything and everybody, others have nothing. Going around in merry-go-round circles where race and gender qualifies you or disqualifies you for an office, whether it's the president of the United States or the president of the Eatin' Meetin' Green Club. (laughs) We know the destination, our direction is confused. And God says we have walked around in circles long enough. You see, they were delivered, but they were not free. There's that word again. They were delivered, but they were not free. Vashti McKenzie preaches with her whole body. So we've posted video of her preaching this past Easter Sunday at Trinity United Church in Chicago, the former congregation of Senator Barack Obama. You can watch her speak about the need for prophetic passion in American Christianity and witness how her words resonate with that predominantly African-American congregation. 
And we also wrote about the rigorous task of researching and selecting audio clips of Vashti McKenzie's preaching. Read a behind-the-scenes account of that process on our blog, SOF Observed. Tell us what you think. We want to know not only if we hit the mark, but how these selections resonated with you. Look for links on our homepage, speakingoffaith.org. After a short break, Vashti McKenzie sheds light on the prophetic tradition of preaching and social criticism to which she belongs and which came to public attention in soundbite form when scrutiny focused on Jeremiah Wright, the former minister of Trinity United Church of Christ. Also, her thoughts on life beyond the election. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness, online at loveandforgive.org. And by Gather.com, where friends keep up with the people, conversations, and moments that matter most. Public radio listeners are talking at Gather.com. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, African-American woman leader meeting Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie. Vashti McKenzie is Bishop of the 13th Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME. In 2004, she was also elected President of the Council of Bishops of the AME, yet another first as a woman. Her life reflects a convergence of themes that have come to the surface of American life during the current presidential campaign—race, gender, leadership, and religion. Vashti McKenzie values the prophetic tradition of socially activist thought and preaching. This became a focus of political analysis and controversy when portions of sermons of Senator Barack Obama's former pastor, Jeremiah Wright, were publicized this past spring. Vashti McKenzie has long known Jeremiah Wright as a friend and has preached across the years at his former church, Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. I do want to ask you about some of the issues that were raised in our culture, but I think not anywhere near resolved around uh, the person of Jeremiah Wright in the the context of Barack Obama's presidential campaign. And I don't want to talk so much, you know, about him, but about, here's what, you know, one question I'd like to ask you is just how you experienced that conflict. You know, what you longed for people to have a better grasp of, to be able to put any of that into context. I've kind of asked you a bunch of questions there, but we know wherever you'd yeah. like to weigh in. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, first one was um, how was the experience? It was painful. Mm-hmm. It was very, very painful uh, to watch and hear and listen the negative firestorm that came at the end of a successful pastoral ministry. Very painful. 
And um, a lot of it was only because uh, Senator Obama uh, was a member of that congregation. Secondly, I don't think people understand black theology. Yeah. They need to read Cone's books and all the others. Um, and I think Cone did an excellent job in interviews and others in, in sharing. James Cone, right? James Cone, right, mm-hmm. uh, about theology, black theology. And the reason why I said, you know, it is the lens. In other words, uh, theology is the system through which you evaluate and interpret scripture or ministry and all of that. And then um, there is a, a thought of universal theology. In other words, uh, the universal human experience. But uh, for many African Americans and for women, there is, they are not a part of that universal experience. And so the starting point for your interpretation, the starting point for uh, building your theology comes out of the African-American experience, just as womanist theology uh, begins with the woman uh, experience as the starting point of building the lens through which you interpret. So I think a lot of people don't understand it, and uh, there are some people who grabbed it and ran with it in a direction that sort of startled everybody. And, you know, preacher after preacher and bishop after bishop uh, through the years had preached similar things, but nobody uh, raked them over the coals. And, of course, the thing that was on YouTube that I guess that started the whole ball rolling was not what he was saying. He was quoting someone else who was not African-American. Right. (laughs) And what I'm just trying to cast my mind back. It was about it was linking the events of September 11th in a broad historical perspective with American actions in the rest of the world. It was, sure. right? It was making connections between right. m- and events and moral culpability, right? And it wasn't his thought. Um, it wasn't his thought. He, he was, was expounding on it. Mm-hmm. What someone else said from another ethnic position. I was in Africa for 9 11. And I never feared for my life as an American anywhere in the world, except for during that season. Serving in Africa for those four years, I was able to view the United States through the eyes of someone else other than American media. I found the BBC, the Chinese news, you know, the, all the other countries, Italian news, French news, Spanish news service, you know, able to hear what they said about my country. And in fact, you have a totally different picture of your home when you see it through other eyes. And you're watching the media, you're watching American media, you know, covering the same issues and the same story. I was going, wow, this is very subjective. Okay. I said, oh, this is not objective at all. This is very subjective. (laughs) So on the one hand, you know, it's like, let us entertain you. And then on the other hand, this is what you have to be afraid of today. And, okay, so prophetic preaching is... The opposite of entertaining. Ah, uh, you're not going to let me talk about this, are you? Uh, no, 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 I am. I am. But I, what, what I want to, okay, if you want to come back, if, if, if you think I'm derailing you, don't let me. But what I was going to say is what felt inflammatory when people heard sections of Jeremiah Wright's sermons on YouTube and really things taken out of context, um, it was that combination of seeing things in a different way but also the anger and the righteous indignation, righteous indignation that is part of the prophetic tradition. And it was that passion attached to the idea that maybe America had, was morally culpable in the, in the large sweep of history. And maybe there was some connection between that and bad things that were happening to us now um, that, that struck a really emotional nerve in the American psyche of something being... Um, almost anti-American. So what did you want people to understand about that kind of preaching and that kind of theology? Well, I have to come back. I have to come back. You know, I've got to come back and say that from any pulpit in America, whether the preacher is black, white, Asian, yellow, blue, pink or green, whatever color, you will hear somewhere, some strain 
of criticism or opinion uh, about America. You will hear it. I hear it when I, you know, go through the channels and and I listen and I listen and I listen, uh, you know, and I hear a preacher say, you you vote for those uh, who believe in your values. Or you, you switch the channel and you hear the preacher says, now we're going to support our troops, right or wrong. And okay, here's his opinion here. Uh, you hear a variety of things, not okay. just in the black church. Mm-hmm. You hear a variety of opinions that support a particular political line, a political bent, um, you know, a political thing. It's not just in the black church. I'm saying it is in all churches. Okay. Uh, what happens in America is we have an opinion that we can't do anything wrong, that everything we do is right. Hmm? <laughs> we, we as a culture. Mm-hmm. 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 What do you think? Do What do I think? Yeah. I'm a journalist. You know, I don't have any opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> when Americans hear those kinds of opinions in the pulpit, the other kind of opinion, um, that we support our troops, right or wrong. That sounds patriotic. And now what I hear you doing is being patriotic in a sophisticated and complex way. I think you're still saying that in the pulpit, it's appropriate to point out that everything is not perfect with American democracy. I mean, you know, so take what you just said to me and tell me what is the place for that kind of analysis in the pulpit and in preaching and how that comes together with this prophetic tradition? Well, the prophetic tradition is is one thing. Uh, If you're talking about social criticism and whether social criticism um, has a place in the preaching tradition, yes. Uh, Does political criticism, I think that's what you're asking now, uh, whether political criticism belongs in the pulpit. I think you'll find uh, a lot of opinion that says, no, we preach Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the grave. Uh, You know, that is our mandate. That is the gospel ministry. But to be silent about what's happening in your neighborhood, is, is, is that sin? So for me, if I'm in my neighborhood, let's say I'm back in Baltimore, I'm at Payne Memorial, I'm the pastor, and I have 5,000 people who um, cannot feed their families. And I look up and I've got another 5,000 coming because they're being dropped out of a system. Then I'm supposed to be silent and not pick up the phone and call my council representative or my mayor and say, uh, this is what's happening in my neighborhood. What can we do together to fix this? Uh, because in a minute, it's getting ready to be out of hand. Okay. And they tell me, well, we made these decisions months ago and years ago. And I said, but you made these decisions and you expect me to feed these people and take care of them and be a part of the safety net system that means now you're impacting my budget, my tithes and offerings that are going to go from our people to help fix this problem that you created and didn't bother to consult me. Mm-hmm. So you want me to shift my budget to be a part of the safety net because we're going to do that anyway. You know, we're going to demonstrate the love of God in a very tangible way. But I'm supposed to do that silently and not ask questions to see how we can make sure this doesn't happen again? Bishop Vashti McKenzie. The lens of black theology, as Vashti McKenzie said, is influentially explored in the writing of James Cone of New York City's Union Theological Seminary. Here is James Cone being interviewed earlier this year at the Trinity Institute of the Episcopal Parish of Trinity Wall Street in New York. Now, you come to this reading the scriptures, the same scriptures that the dominant white church read. How can people read Holy Scriptures so differently? How do you read the scriptures? I read the scripture from the bottom. That is, I read the scriptures from the vantage point 
of the wheat, the poor, and the helpless. I think that's the dominant theme in the scriptures. I think you see that in Amos and the other prophets. I think you see that in the Exodus, that symbol. I think you see that in the story of Jesus' life and certainly in the cross. I think you have to read the scripture through the eyes of those who are marginal, weak, helpless in this society. But I don't, everybody doesn't read it that way. And the people who don't read it that way are usually the people who are already on top. They are the advantage. Now, there are many voices in the scripture. And you have to choose what the scripture doesn't do is self-interpret. You have to make a choice. I choose by looking at the scriptures from the vantage point of the cross, a violent event, an event in which the helpless Christ, Lord, is hanging there. I think that is close to a lynch black victim than it is to somebody who is sitting up in some mansion somewhere. Watch that entire interview with James Cone on our website, speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, African-American woman leader meeting Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie. a similar question to the one I asked at the beginning of this talking about Jeremiah Wright. There was a point in the primary campaign, and this is when I started thinking about wanting to interview you, uh, where there were suddenly, it was like the, the notion of being a woman leader, being an African-American leader, somehow there was a competition between the two in a sense. Well, which, you know, which would be best? <laughs> and I started thinking about Vashti McKenzie, who is an African-American woman leader, and how you hold all those qualities together in yourself. And I just want to ask you also how you experienced some of the dynamics that were raised about gender and about race um, in that primary period, how you personally took that in, what disturbed you, what did you feel we weren't really addressing head on? Well, I still feel that um, there are still more emphasis on whether one is black or whether one is female, and that our focus should be upon the issue, the program, the platform, uh, the track record, and then, again, the things that need to be done to look ahead. I mean, we've got, we have issues that need to be dealt with, and they need to be dealt with effectively, Mm -hmm. uh, not only for our future, but for our children's future. We have a a domestic policy that uh, is kind of ragged here, and we already know what's happening on Wall Street stock market. Uh, Our government is is bailing out uh, the financial system here, private financial organizations, to uh, keep it from getting worse. Uh, But then you wonder who's going to bail out the American government. Uh, You begin to wonder, you know, is America for sale? And uh, these are very tenuous times uh, in our country, and we're all hoping for the best and the better. So we should not be focusing on whether one is a female uh, or whether one is African-American. Let's focus on what they say, what they say they can do, uh, what the policy can be, Mm -hmm. uh, how can they perform. That should be the focus. And I live for the day. Uh, I said over and over again, I live for the day when my gender and my race means nothing means nothing about whether I'm qualified to do a job or perform a task that my gifts, my skills, my character, my mental astuteness, these things is what gets me in the door, not whether I'm female or not whether I'm African-American, not whether I'm from the Asian uh, Pacific Rim, not whether I'm Hispanic or Latino, but my gifts, my skills, my graces, these things qualify me uh, to do the job. Period. You often write about, you know, leaders who happen to be women. And I, I, I mean, I can imagine you also leaders who happen to be African-American or happen right. to be Latino. Mm-hmm. 
You know, when the when the ship is sinking and you're going down for the third time, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, somebody somebody's getting ready to cast a net to say, you know, I can pull this ship out of the water and all of you will live. Are you going to stand there and take time and say, are you African-American? <laughs> you know, what's your heritage? What's your parentage? Right. You just want to get you want to get saved. You want to you want to live. You want to get out of the, the rough waters here. You don't want to drown. You talk a lot in your books about um, it, it's important for you for people to think for themselves about what are societal defining moments for them. And I'd just love to know what your perspective is, you know, in these years we're in now. Because um, I have a feeling you may not give the obvious answers. You know, what are the define, societal defining moments that you see, that you're experiencing, that we, that are going to shape us um, as we move forward well beyond, you know, this year, this presidential election and the crises of today? I think that um, you're talking, you're referring to when I talk about defining moments, things that happen uh, so that things are, are different after that moment happens. They have impact uh, upon your life so that how you were living prior to it was changed by that moment so that you live differently after that. Like uh, certainly for me, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a defining moment for me. And I think in in this era, this election, whoever wins, it's going to be a defining moment. Mm. I believe that because there's so many young people, hooray, 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 (laughs) who have been content to let other people make decisions for them, uh, who are waking up and who are working and volunteering and getting excited. And there's going to be one group that's disappointed and my fear is that they would just throw up their hands and walk away yeah. and that they're unable to handle it. And I, I would hate for that to happen. I would hope that whichever side, whatever it is, that they would use that disappointment to continue to participate and to work and to volunteer and, of course, to vote. This is a most exciting time to be alive in the world. We are right on the cusp of moving into new directions. Uh, We are learning, uh, moving from this industrial age to this information age, which is changing all of our relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think the church is the last place uh, where we're going to learn how to relate to each other as human beings. You mean it's the last place, it's, it's, it's one of the last places where that is what we focus on? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, where, we, yeah. where it's taught, mm-hmm. where it's preached, where it's taught, where you learn it, where you're in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. We don't do it in school anymore. Yeah, it's intergenerational, too, in churches. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, on how we relate to each other. Uh, but for me, I remember very vividly uh, my dad, big guy, 6'4", 200-pound guy, you know, AAU track champion out of the University of Wisconsin, big guy. Uh, you know, your daddies are always a little girl's hero. Uh, and I vividly watched my dad uh, watching uh, the dogs and the hoses released on people who were in the freedom marches down south uh, with tears coming down his eyes. And I was a little girl, and he turned to me and he says, never let anybody ask you what you did for your people and for your country. And so I never want my children to ask me, what did you do? I want them to be able to see it. And I hope every adult who is living and alive today will be able to do something to improve uh, where we live and who we are so that when you turn around and hand this world to your children, you will not be ashamed.
The Right Reverend Vashti Murphy McKenzie is presiding prelate of the 13th Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. She is based in Nashville, Tennessee. She has authored several books, including Not Without a Struggle, Leadership Development for African-American Women in Ministry. my interview with Vashti McKenzie, visit our website, speakingoffaith.org. There you can download an MP3 of my unedited conversation with her, as well as this program for free. Or subscribe to our podcast, and we'll deliver them directly to your desktop. And on our staff blog, SOF Observed, we're looking to you for ideas. Everything from how we might explore the ethical and moral boundaries of our developing economic crisis to suggestions for music for an upcoming program on revenge and forgiveness. Scientists are exploring how and why revenge and forgiveness are biologically driven instincts. They're in our DNA. My guest in that program says that if we better understand our capacity for revenge, then we can nurture our capacity for forgiveness. We're looking for your stories of revenge, of forgiveness, and of what you've learned in your experience of them both. Look for links to share your story and SOF Observe on our website, speakingoffaith.org. Senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Sheck, Shiraz Janjua, and Rob McGinley Myers, with assistance from Amara Hark Weber. Our online editor is Trent Gillis, with web producer Andrew Dayton. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. Additional funding is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. On the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, with the presidential election approaching, Americans remain divided about how much religion they want in their political life. Journalist Stephen Waldman has done an unusual study of how the culture wars have skewed contemporary American sense of how we came to have religious liberty in the first place, what it really means, and how to preserve it. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media.